Welcome to the Food Junkies Podcast. Here, we aim to provide you with the experience, strength, and hope of professionals actively working on the front lines in the field of food addiction. The purpose of our show is to educate you, the listener, and increase overall awareness about food addiction as a disease with abstinence as the solution. Here, we talk about all things recovery. Most importantly, how to thrive rather than just survive. So stay positive, make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread. Hey everyone, this is Clarissa Kennedy. And before I get to this amazing episode with Terry Cole, all about boundaries, perfectionism, and a new version of codependency, I have an exciting announcement to make. As you may or may not know, Dr. Vera Tarman teaches a three-week sugar and food addiction course through the Adapt Your Life Academy. Next enrollment is this September, but you can join the waiting list now and the link is on our website. However, what we are so excited about is Adapt Your Life is running a free 10-day sugar challenge where Molly Painshaw and I will be joining the team of experts, including obesity medicine physician who we've interviewed, Dr. Eric Westman, and award-winning nutritionist who we've also interviewed, Amy Berger, the stall slayer, where we will be doing live interactive sessions to help support you in this journey. So maybe you're thinking, I've already quit sugar. I don't need this course. Well, this is where it could be helpful for friends and family members who've been curious about what you're doing and need that additional support to start their own journey to health and well-being. They will get tons of resources and it's a soft start, not about weight loss or cutting out all carbs. It's just a 10-day challenge to help guide these newbies into how to avoid added sugars to give them a little taste of the food freedom we get to experience on a regular basis. This link too will also be in our show notes and on the webpage at www.foodjunkiespodcast.com. Okay, now without further ado, I want to introduce you to Terry Cole. She is the boundary boss. Terry is a licensed psychotherapist and global leading expert in personal empowerment. For two decades, she has worked with some of the world's most well-known personalities, from international pop stars to Fortune 500 CEOs. She has a gift for making complex psychological concepts accessible and then actionable. Today, Terry talks to us about what boundaries are, how absolutely critical it is to have good boundaries, why it's so hard to set them, how not setting them serves us some telltale signs that you have a problem with boundaries. How do we set boundaries kindly and clearly without sounding mean? A new concept as well she introduced to us is what is secondary gain? Can it help explain how it keeps us stuck in our slips, binges, and or return to use? Then we unpack perfectionism and codependency with a new version of codependency that will make your head spin high-functioning codependency, which is a behavior that includes disordered boundaries, where you're overly invested in the feeling states, the decisions, the outcomes, and the circumstances of the people in your life. You do this to the detriment of your own internal peace and your financial, emotional, or physical well-being. It also communicates to those around us that we think they are incapable and they need our help and they can't do it on their own. 
It was really, really powerful. Terry also shares her personal journey that brought her into this work, explores where our boundary blueprints come from, and gives us her five keys to self-mastery. Listen to this episode a few times. Each time there are some new takeaways. Enjoy the show. All right. We are so excited to have Terry Cole from Boundary Boss here on the Food Junkies podcast today. So Terry, welcome. Thanks for having me. I'm super pumped to be here. Awesome. So can you share a little bit of your personal story and what made you inspired to write the book Boundary Boss? In it, you share that you sent yourself to Boundary Bootcamp. What was your aha moment and what exactly happens in Boundary Bootcamp? Well, you know, what do they say? You teach what you most need to learn. So I was a boundary disaster. That is fact. And I didn't realize that's what it was in my young life. So I started therapy very young. I stopped drinking when I was 21. So, you know, I didn't realize that a lot of the resentment I had in my relationships and conflicts that were arising and me feeling taken advantage of by people, there was all these things that I didn't realize were related to my disordered boundaries. So I think boundary bootcamp became like a million, seven years of therapy where I really just started grasping the concept of what was missing in my life. And then I actually had a whole career before I became a psychotherapist. I was a talent agent for like supermodels and celebrities negotiating contracts. That's basically what I did for almost 10 years. And as over here, here's me getting healthier on my own personal, right? Psychological journey in therapy, you know, not drinking all, all of that stuff, which of course made me realize I needed to get the hell out of entertainment. I was like, hi, this hotbed of mental health, not exactly. And how much boundaries were violated in that business itself. Not even just with the me too way with a million and five other ways. So what I found is that once I got out of entertainment, I really, I guess I came to a pivotal moment where I couldn't deny that I did not care about the Pantene deal, that I did not care about negotiating the movie contract. I should have been super pumped. What I cared about was the mental health of my clients. And I was like, okay, this is not a hobby anymore. (laughs) Like you actually maybe have to do something before you start super sucking at your job, which of course would have been the next thing that happened. So I quit my job, went back to school and went to NYU, got my master's in an accelerated program because I knew exactly what I wanted to do. I wanted to open a private practice immediately. And as soon as I opened my practice, I started seeing over and over again it didn't matter what the presenting problems were. People could come in, maybe it's like family of origin stuff or trouble with work or trouble in their interpersonal relationships, romantic friendships, whatever. But I would be able to literally connect the dots backwards to the lack of this all important skill set. So that was really how I got to boundaries because me becoming a boundary boss, right? Me becoming a master of my own boundaries completely changed my life. And then I started helping my clients identify what was going on with them. So that is why boundary boss, because I've been a psychotherapist for 25 years and it's no better. Like literally the people still come into my practice being like, now I can be like, hi, read my book, but, (laughs) but it's not, it's not like they suddenly nobody's people are still not learning this at home in school, getting advanced degrees. There is no comprehensive. And so I thought I would create the comprehensive go-to book and all the things about boundaries. Yeah. 
I agree. I'm also a mental health professional. And I remember being young in the game and going, I want to go into schools and I want to teach this. And then just realizing like, that there were so many adults that, yeah, absolutely. So I'm, I'm so happy that you wrote the book and the book is super easy to read you guys. And it makes total sense from beginning to end. So I just want to give a little plug there for sure for the book, but let's get really basic. What are boundaries? Where do they come from? Who are they for? What function (laughs) do they serve? Yeah. Give us the 101. All right. So according to Terry Cole, boundaries, I want you to really think about it like your own personal rules of engagement. It's to let other people know what's okay with you and what's not okay with you. So what your boundaries are comprised of are your preferences, your limits, and your deal breakers. So that means if you want to be fluent in boundaries, you need to not only know your preferences, your limits, and your deal breakers, you must also have the ability to communicate them in actual words when you so choose. So that's my two cents on what boundaries are, who they're for for us and for the people in our lives. Because think about it. If you have disordered boundaries that fall into the category of being like a people pleaser or like a peacekeeper or like a chameleon or a pushover, right? All different archetypes. By the way, if anyone wants to take a free quiz and figure out their archetype, go to boundaryquiz.com. It's free. But those are three of the ones that are more having porous boundaries, which are too malleable. And what happens is, you say yes when you really want to say no. You feel overly responsible for the way other people feel, overfunction, overgive. But when we really think about it, is it nice, like under this guise of being nice, is it nice to say yes when you really want to say no? And the answer is not really. It's dishonest for sure. But the real tragedy in that is that we are giving the people in our life corrupted data about who we are, about what we like, about what we want. And then we feel unknown, we feel unseen, we feel unheard, but we're painting ourselves sort of into that corner, not realizing, because so many of us were raised, literally raised and praised to be self-abandoning codependents. Fact. The more selfless you are, the better you are as a human being. And even though we all grew up in different homes and cultures, we all have what I refer to as your downloaded boundary blueprint which is basically a collection of all of the things that you witnessed in your life. So maybe you had a maternal impactor, so it could be a mother, but could be a foster mom, an auntie, whoever raised you, the adults in your life, who was a people pleaser. You learned, oh, this is a good way to be. This is what it means to be a good person. So, I mean, I've been teaching this for years. I've taught this to people in 192 countries. And not one time has anyone said, oh my gosh, in elementary school, they taught me all about boundaries or in my home, they told me. People really wanted me to assert my boundaries. They don't. What people wanted for most of us was for you to be a good girl, for you to not make waves. Don't be a troublemaker. Don't be a big mouth. Don't be a drama queen, right? Don't make me uncomfortable. So whatever you need to do to suck up, whatever it is, you make yourself uncomfortable, but don't make me uncomfortable is the covert and overt messaging that many of us got growing up. We're not blaming parents. It doesn't even matter. You know, people love to say, we'll just assume that they did the best they could at the time. We can assume that and we can assume they sucked. It doesn't matter, right? Doesn't Maybe they were really mean and didn't do the best they could but we don't care (laughs) because it's your life now, right? And it's really all about how, what we learned and what we witnessed and what we were taught, how did that impact 
the way we relate to our own boundaries. So much of this is unconscious. So the reason why I talk about this downloaded blueprint is because we got to go into the basement of your mind, which is all back here. And there's a whole bunch of stuff and boxes and information that we need to open up to understand why we relate to boundaries the way that we do, because every single person listening has a damn good reason for relating the way that we do. Again, it's not about blaming. It's about a much deeper self-understanding so that we can get to self-compassion and then we can make conscious choices about how do we want to relate to boundaries, right? Because I think the myths around having healthy boundaries, I mean, I've heard them all, you've probably heard them all, but people think you have to be mean, you have to be bitchy, you have to be rejecting, you're saying no all the time, you're super aggressive. None of that stuff is true, right? You can always be kind. If you want to be, if, if you are drawing a boundary or need to say no to someone that you really care about, you don't have to be screaming. No, you can say, I love that you always think of me and I really wish I could, but I'm unavailable on Sunday. You can provide context if you want to, right? What's the difference between providing context for a boundary that you are establishing and convincing the other person you have a right. And I think that those two things get really meshed up and confused. So providing context means if I really care about you and I want you to more deeply understand me, I might say, I love that you think about me. I can't make it on Sunday because I have a big presentation Monday morning early. If I didn't have that, you know, I would be there. I'll be with you in spirit. Let's have lunch on Wednesday. You can tell me all about it. Like there's ways to be super loving and not throw yourself under the bus because what ends up happening is we end up resentful. We end up pissed at the other people. And instead of looking in and being like, well, I said yes, but I really wanted to say no. Suddenly we're like, I can't believe how entitled Betty is. She is such a selfish jerk. Betty, that idiot, like it's all Betty's fault now when the reality is we get so mad that people put us in a position of having to say no, but the more you flex this muscle and you can do it. I wrote a whole friggin' book about it, like literally step by step, no matter where you are, if you're listening to this, if you're like, I don't know the different, a boundary and a hamburger bun, right? Let's just say, I promise you, you're in the exact right place, the exact right time in your life to learn. You don't need to know more than, wow, I really would like to be better at this. I want to be more authentic in my life. That's all you need to start this process. Because one last thing to say about this, if you think about becoming fluent in boundaries, like becoming fluent in a language, because it's the same thing, it's very similar, you wouldn't feel bad about yourself or like you're less than if you don't wake up tomorrow fluent in French, because you really want to be you would go, oh, I need to learn from someone. I need to try it out. I need to become conversational. Maybe eventually I'll become fluent. So it's about also giving yourself time, but all of it starts with looking in and having a deeper understanding of why you are the way you are. And of course, I walk you through that in the book and there's lots of like deep questions because it's really about asking the right questions. Because I always say like, I'm, I'm not anybody's guru, not even a boundary guru, but I'm a damn good GPS to get people to the information that they need within themselves to change this behavior that is not for your highest good. And it's not for the highest good of your relationships either, because you can end up at the end of your life. I mean, I've had women come to me in their sixth or seventh you know, decade on earth 
being like, okay, I've got everything. I like my spouse. I'm in good shape. We've got money. Kids are on track. Retirement's good. I volunteer. I, you know, go to soul cycle three times a week, whatever the things are. Why do I feel so empty? And I'm like, because building a life on checked boxes means that nobody friggin' knows you. And that is empty. I love that, you know, asking for what you need, but also having that compassion for yourself when you're just starting this process. And, you know, we work with clients and individuals with the disease or they struggle with addiction. Mm -hmm. And this, I don't think I've ever worked with anyone, whether it's addiction or not, that doesn't have this issue. So why is it so hard for us to set them? And why, like, how does it serve us to not set them? Mm. Is it to, you know, you thrive on that resentment piece? <laughs> well, here's, that's actually a great question. So let's start with, why is it so hard? Nobody taught us. So you couldn't possibly know something. And not only we're, we're starting from minus zero, like below the zero, because not only did no one teach us how to assert ourselves appropriately, we were taught that to assert ourselves appropriately meant we were selfish or hysterical or a drama queen or mean or selfish or all the things. So that's a lot to go up against. And we really have to get that unconscious material up, depending on the culture, the country, the, you know, every family, right? We have familial norms and acceptable behaviors. All of those things come together to create your unique boundary blueprint. What do we get out of it though? And that is a really poignant and important question. So the question, the way I would ask it from a therapeutic point of view is, what do we get by staying stuck, right? Staying in this position, making these choices that make us angry, that make us feel used, that make us feel whatever. And this is really all about secondary gain. So this is like a therapeutic concept that is exactly what it sounds like, right? You have primary gain, which is obvious gain. You go to the gym because you want to be healthier. The obvious gain is being healthier. Secondary gain, and I'm going to give you guys right now some really quick question. You can ask yourself when you find yourself in anything you don't want to be in, right? Repeatedly continuing to have these disordered boundaries or anything else. It can have to do with addiction. It can have, There's secondary gain in every dysfunctional thing that we do. It's just, you got to find what it is because it makes it so much easier to change it if there's a self-understanding. Because most of the time, especially with drinking, so I'll go give you an example and then I'll give you the question. So during the pandemic, I had a client who was like a lot of my clients, like a lot of people indulged more in drinking, you know, THC, the smoking weed, vaping, all the things, more Netflixing, more tiger kinging, like whatever, whatever people were doing to just be like, wow, this sucks and I don't want to deal with it. But this client, she didn't really have a history of addiction, addiction. And I saw a lot of people in, you know, I just call it circumstantial use, right? Where you're in a situation right now, you want to numb more than usual right now. A lot of people felt that way. We'll see what happens when the pandemic starts slowing down. Then, then you know, like, did the person keep that accelerated use or did they sort of go back to more normal use? We'll see. With this woman, she would see, she said to me three weeks in a row, listen, I want you to keep me accountable. I don't want to drink anymore during the week. I've been drinking three big girl glasses of wine every night. 
And I just, it's not good for me. It makes me feel like crap. I'm hungover, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, okay. So, you know, we, we're trying to talk around like why she thought she was doing it, but you know, she was just like, no, it's just, I'm just bored. It's just that. And I'm thinking it's definitely not just that, but she'll get to it when she gets to it. So finally, first week, she's like, so I failed. I didn't drink Monday, but by Tuesday I drank and I used to see her on Wednesdays. I was like, okay, the next week. All right. I failed. I didn't even make it to Monday. She's like, I drank on Sunday this week. I was like, okay. And then the next week I was like, okay, <laughs> this experiment <laughs> is not working. So let's look at the secondary gain. Cause there's something else that's going on. So here's the question I asked her, what do you get to not face, not feel, or not experience by continuing to drink three big girl glasses of wine every night of the week? And she would no hesitation said, I get to not face the state of my marriage. I was like, okay, so what we should be talking about <laughs> is the state of your marriage and not you making yourself, beating yourself up because you can't stop drinking. You know what I mean? It's this, um, a distraction or a diversion from what is happening. So for anyone listening, if you find yourself in a situation, maybe you repeatedly are dating someone who's unavailable, unavailable people. If you ask the question, what do I get to not face, not feel, not experience by continuing to date folks who are unavailable? Well, I could venture a guess you get to not be legitimately vulnerable. You get to not have to build a real relationship that maybe you don't feel like you have the skills to build. You get to stay comfortable in your misery, right? The, the devil, you know, like I'm always in a bad relationship. Blah. That happens too. Where we get super like cozy with our misery and not intentionally, of course, again, unconscious stuff is at work. So this is something that you can put that question or those questions in your back pocket. And anytime you find yourself stuck, ask yourself, what do I get to not face, not feel, not experience by not changing this situation? And I guarantee you something valuable will pop into your mind. It doesn't mean you it's magically fixed, but it does mean you know where to look because most of the time, like what my client was doing, you just, you're beating yourself up. Like I say, I'm going to get in shape and then I don't do it. And what's wrong with me? And I'm lazy or I'm stupid or I'm whatever. I, I, I can't never follow through. When you become radically curious about why you're doing what you're doing, instead of being radically judgmental, which most of us are, it is so much more beneficial and your ability to change things. I mean, we've got to have that self-compassion, you know? So let's imagine, well, we don't even have to imagine. This is my story. I didn't even know. I didn't even know. I didn't even know I had bad boundaries or that I didn't have boundaries at all until I knew. And it took me going to therapy to figure that out. So what are some telltale signs that maybe we have a problem with boundaries? Like what red flags should we be looking out for? Oh, such a good question. First of all, start with taking your resentment inventory. That's your first step. Because usually, and we all know, literally right now, I could ask each one of you, like, who are you holding some resentment towards? You wouldn't be like, nobody, not one person. Amazing. You would have someone or something. And usually that will tell you where either a boundary needs to be established or a boundary you have established is being violated. So it's a great place to start is with a resentment inventory. The next thing is to dial into your body. If you're in the moment and something happens, you're in a team meeting and Betty says something douchey, right? About you or does something that puts you in a bad light. Even if you say nothing in that moment, something happened in your body. 
like something actually happened. You definitely made a mental note. It's almost like that resentment file cabinet that we have. We're like, oh, let me just find Betty and put another another reason 7004 why Betty's an idiot or whatever it is. So I feel like for a lot of people, when we're starting this process of becoming more aware of where we might need boundaries, we feel frozen in the moment. Something happens and we're like, oh, because it's fight, flight, freeze, fawn, right? These are different things that can happen when you feel threatened, especially if you are not fluent in the language of boundaries. It's like sometimes you literally get frozen. You can't say anything. So usually in the beginning, I'm always teaching folks that you can go back. So let's say Betty says the not nice thing in the meeting and you say nothing in the meeting, but maybe you get awfully quiet for the rest of the meeting. Betty knows, you know, all the subtext, like mm, everyone knows something's happening, but we don't know exactly what. You can go back to her, go to her desk, say, hey, I actually was just thinking about what happened in the meeting and I wanted to make a simple request that if you want to talk to me about something that has to do with you and I, that you don't do it in the meeting. That was unnecessary and I didn't appreciate it. I'd like to ask you to not do it again. I'm here. I'm happy to talk to you about anything you want to talk about, but I felt really blindsided by that in the meeting and I didn't appreciate it. Maybe Betty's going to be like, why make it such a big deal? You can say, hey, I'm not making a big deal. I'm straight up telling you how I felt about what happened. And I'm straight up asking you to not do it again and letting you know I'm super open to having any private conversation with you privately, right? Like, and you'll get good at this. This sounds like, you know, well, you probably wouldn't do that the first time, but the more you learn this language, the less offended you are and the more effective you become at being like, oh no, that's not what I'm saying. Let me reiterate what I'm saying. I said what I said, and I'm happy to say it again. So you get what I'm saying, Betty. Okay. That's exactly what I want to learn how to be able to say, but I definitely operate out of a place of fear. Definitely. I am a people pleaser. Confrontation makes me feel uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. So you kind of touched on this a bit earlier in how to learn how to set these um, boundaries in a kind, clear, concise way. Mm -hmm. How do I start? like really start in even mm -hmm. just small ways? Well, two things. One, I usually say, start with lower priority folks, right? If you're the person who they send you the wrong friggin' salad, just send the friggin' salad back. Like, just don't be like, I'm worried that the waitress is going to get in trouble or whatever it is. Do it nicely. But what we're really doing is going in and prioritizing our preference. Somewhere along the line, we learned that asserting our preference makes us selfish, makes us mean, makes us not a team player, makes us something. And none of those things are true. People in your life, if you actually want them to know you, you need to share your preferences. It doesn't mean everyone always acquiesces to what you want, but certainly you don't need to be acquiescing to what everyone else in the world wants, which is what you do when you're a people pleaser. Uh, Cheryl Richardson has a great quote. She said, um, like biting your tongue to keep the peace starts a war within yourself, which is so very true. So we start with lower priority folks and we do it early and often. Change your mind about sharing your preference. See it as a gift that you're giving the people in your life. Some people will like the gift. Some people will not like the gift. And you being uncomfortable because you, you did, um, you know, Clarissa, you mentioned it makes me uncomfortable. It's okay to be uncomfortable. Dude, you are super not that fragile. Like you're going to be fine. 
everyone's going to be fine. Nobody, nobody isn't spontaneously bursting into flames. And if you, for your life, for my life, for all of our lives, if you want to create what it is that you're meant to create in this world, whether it's deeply intimate relationships, whether it's a positive ripple effect that affects hundreds of millions of people, the only way you can do that is if you get to the point of being fully self-determined, like a fully embodied version of yourself, because this is what makes you unique. So it's like going along to get along. That becomes the glass ceiling that we create for ourselves. Like there's no going past that because people don't know you. So we start small and the language, which of course I share obviously tons of this in the book, but part of the language is realizing that any request you may have is, can be simple. This is from, what's the, what is it called? Hold on. Yeah. Nonviolent communication, Marshall Rosenberg, where one of the ones I use all the time is I'd like to make a simple request because according to Marshall Rosenberg, and I agree, any request is simple. Is it easy? Maybe not. Are they going to do it? Maybe not. But in sharing what it is that you would like, even in small things. So closer, you said, how can I start small? If you're out with your friends and they're like, well, where are we going to go eat? And they're like, let's go have pizza, but you really don't want pizza. Say, I want to go somewhere I can get a big salad. So if they have big salads there, yes. And if not, I don't really want to go there. Like put yourself in the mix because many of us have, it's so habituated in saying, you know me, I'm easy breezy. Whatever you guys want is good. You know, it's all good. Wow. I hate that phrase so much because it's not true. And it doesn't mean life isn't good if it isn't all good all the time. So why not assert yourself? Sometimes just not wanting to do something is a really friggin' good reason not to do it. And we don't need to write a goddamn dissertation on why we're saying no. We don't. We're able to say, I'm not up for it, or it's not my thing. You know, people always ask me to do crap I don't want to do, like outside concerts. I always use this as an example because there's most things I don't mind doing, but that I don't like, just bugs, sun, whatever. I don't like it. People talking when you're trying to listen to James Taylor, not my favorite thing. So if someone asks me, I always say, oh no, that's not my thing, but you, I love. So how about next Wednesday? Let's do lunch. Tell me how it was, right? I'm a no to Tanglewood, but I'm always a yes to you, my friend. There is all sweet and loving ways that you can honor yourself, be kind to the other person, or do it with a little more heat. If the other person is indeed being a jerk, like Bob from accounting, let's say, like we don't need to do it with love if we don't love Bob from accounting. And if we need to draw a more, a little bit more heated boundary, then we do that as well. But the starting is you start with lower priority people and start with smaller things by sharing and asserting your preferences. Yeah. I think so much of that worrying about being mean to somebody else, right. Is really bound up in that big word codependency. And I think it's so hard to get away from that term working in addiction, working in mental health, you know, so what is codependency and how is it different from a healthy relationship or loyalty for that matter? Wow. My favorite topic. One of my favorite topics. All right. So according to me, codependency is being overly invested in the feeling states, the decisions, the outcomes, the circumstances of the people in your life to the detriment of your internal peace, your spiritual, psychological, emotional, financial well-being. So it makes sense because here's the thing. We're all lovers. Of course, we're invested in the people we love being happy. We want them to be happy, obviously. But if we're so invested that it is messing with our own peace, 
that's a problem. So if you're listening and you're like, I don't know, I'm not sure. I'm like, I can't tell. You can tell, trust me. So if your friend calls you and something terrible has happened, I want you to check your urgency. How long does it take for your best friend's problem to become your own? Like it's happening to you. And there's a difference because I think that it's very easy to confuse loyalty with compulsive codependent fixing, saving behavior. I learned this super painful lesson in my life in my twenties. One of my siblings was in an abusive situation and I always felt compelled. Like, I mean, it's my sister. I have to help her. Obviously. I mean, that was my thought. I remember crying to my therapist being like, Oh my God, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? Trust me. I had done plenty up until that point. And she said, let me ask you something. What makes you think, you know, what your sister needs to learn in this life? I was like, uh, well, I think we could agree she doesn't have to learn it with this abusive idiot living in a house with no running water. I mean, can we agree? And she said, no, I don't know what your sister needs to learn or how she needs to learn it in this life. But do you know what's really going on for you? And I was like, obviously not. Maybe you can clue me in. And she said, you've worked incredibly hard to create a pretty harmonious life. Your sister's life being super out of control is causing you pain, making you very uncomfortable. What you really want is for your pain to end so you can get on with your friggin' life. So you want to tie that up in a neat bow somehow. You want to be the solution so you can stop feeling how you're feeling. And I was like, okay, so explain to me. So I'm her sister. Am I supposed to just be like, bye, good luck? And she was like, listen, Tara, you don't even have the power to do what you think you're doing. Like you can't make those decisions for your sister. Every time you've done something, has it stuck? Has it worked? I'm like, nope, it has not. (laughs) She's like, correct. I was like, well, what do I do? She's like, I have an idea. How about draw a boundary? And I did. And I was able to tell my sister, hey, this is super painful for me. I can't talk to you with you telling me all the abusive crap this person is doing because I'm aware of it and I can't. It's too painful. But if you ever want to leave, I'm still your person. And nine months later, she was like, hello, I would like to leave. I was like, great, I'm getting in my car. And she left, never went back, went back to school, got sober, all of those things. But here's the thing. She didn't do it because I inserted myself as the friggin' savior into the middle of her problem, right? Being like, oh, I don't think you can handle your life, but I know what you should do. Where the irony is that I always thought of myself as like Mother Teresa and like so super loving. And then of course, this sort of changed the lens on that. I was like, wow, I'm really doing this for myself. So when she was able to turn her life around, yes, with some assistance from us, but it was her choice. She got to be the hero of her own story, not me as the hero child in an addictive family system, blah, blah, blah. We all know. We all know what that's about. And so that really let me see the difference between, because codependency at its base, let's just go to the bottom. Besides being disordered boundaries extraordinaire, it's a covert or overt bid for control of someone else's situation. Yeah, I think uh, many times in my life, I enjoyed the role of fixer and in a way how it just, you know, distracts from my own problems and needs and that it's easier to get caught up in focusing on someone else. And I know something as well that a lot of the individuals that we work with, they really feel like they thrive with perfectionism, Mm -hmm. yet it's something, it's a disordered relationship with self as well. And so Mm -hmm. can you speak to the relationship of, first of all, what is perfectionism Mm -hmm. and how does it relate to boundaries? 
Yeah. Perfectionism is just a prison, you know, like it's just a nightmare. It is not what people think. I think it's important to make the distinction between, you know, striving for excellence and perfectionism, completely not the same. Perfectionism is this over a huge desire to control every element of all the things. And it's focusing on what's wrong. So you know you're a perfectionist if you do an amazing talk, an amazing presentation, and 98% of it goes exactly as planned, and then 2% doesn't. And when people go, that was amazing, and you go, yeah, except that thing in the end, that thing that happened. Like you literally pointed out, and it's like ruined the thing that you killed yourself to do. Perfectionism also, why it's a prison, is nothing is good enough. So not only are we having ridiculous standards for ourselves, I mean, so many workaholics, I'm a recovering workaholic, still something I deal with all the time, are perfectionists. I'm a recovering perfectionist. So I, I know this from, you know, not just as a therapist, but as a, as a client as well, that it takes the joy out of all the things. And it is having a disordered relationship with yourself. Then you, and that's disordered boundary relationship because there is no perfectionism, because that is an illusion that anything is perfect. Like, hi, life is messy. Love is messy. Being alive is messy. Like the world is messy. This is life. And if we want to control it all, you are set up to fail because you can't. But then you also, we project this onto the people in our life. We're so quick to be like, well, there's certainly a better way to do that. Like so critical of the people in our life, having the bar so high that they're set up to fail as well. But again, it's a way of binding anxiety. So imagine that it's like a it's like a corset and we're like, oh, like pulling it out to make it really tight to hold the anxiety in. Like if I can just get it right, really right, my level of right all the time, then there's this illusion that bad things won't happen or there's this illusion of being in control. But as we all know, or maybe you don't, but here's a newsflash. If you don't, we're not in control. We can control what we think. We can control what we say. We can control what we do. And that's it. But when you're a perfectionist, you are usually bubbling all of that out onto others. And it also makes life such a drag because if you're a perfectionist, you don't want to step outside of your zone of quote unquote genius. You're not open to do new things because you don't want to be bad at something. You like to know all the things and all the outcomes. You're not, a lot of times perfectionists are not adventurous in their lives because what if this thing happens and what if that thing's happened and then, right? And you're like, and you'll be fine if any of those things happen, but it's not having faith. Again, it's this overdeveloped need for control. Yeah. I think I know, again, I don't think I know I had all of those things, poor boundaries, perfectionism, codependency. And I like to like, I like to dress it up as it was loyalty. And I was mm -hmm. the best friend you were ever going to have. And I always had your back and however it was going to be. And that is true. I mean, I do think that I am a loyal person to this day, but now that I have boundaries around it, it's like, Ooh, it's so clear. Like, Oh, that's what loyalty is. Yes. <laughs> It's so true though. The whole thing, I laughed because I used to all, always say like, I'm the best friend you're ever going to have again, because I'm such a high functioning codependent. And I want to make a little distinction between, you know, 
codependency when I started my private practice and understood my own relationship to codependency. And I would, let's say, point it out to one of my clients because I had incredibly capable clients that this is who was attracted to the work that I was doing. So if I said, oh, hey, what you're describing there, that is a codependent dynamic. And they'd be like, no, lady, yet I get it. You're confused. I'm not dependent on squat. Everyone's dependent on me. I'm making all the dough. I'm making all the decisions. What are you talking about? And I was like, oh my God, my clients don't know what codependency is. So it's almost like they were stuck in the mindset of the Melody Beatty, codependent no more, seminal text, which is still the most amazing thing in the world. But with that, there was a lot of talking about enabling and addiction and it having to be with someone who has an addiction issue all of those things. That isn't true. And for me, my my flavor, my own personal flavor of codependency was high-functioning codependency. So I just created a new name and it has a different definition to a degree, but it's such a phenomenon. I was like, I can just do this because it's everywhere. It's happening everywhere. It is not in this neat little box. So high-functioning codependency means that you are overly invested in the feeling states, the outcomes, the decisions, the circumstances of the people you care about to the degree that it is messing with your internal peace, but you make it look easy. You're so freaking capable. Nobody would guess it. They're all like, she's the rock. She's the one we all go to. She's the fixer. She's got the answers. And what happens is we're doing it all, but we are doing it at the expense of ourselves. And it is something that the, I, as soon as I changed the name, my clients were like, oh my God, yes, that is so me. I so identify with that. So, and again, inherent in this is disordered boundaries because we're overly invested in what other people are doing. We think we know what they should be doing. We feel overly responsible for their outcomes, even though we actually in real life can't be. So it is depressing. <laughs> it is exhausting. And here's the thing, it ends up making you bitter. And trust me, you know, all the people will say, oh, my mother, my grandmother is such a martyr. There's no way that when that person was 20, that they were like, I can't wait to become a martyr one day. It happens. Nobody wants to become a martyr. But what happens when you're over-functioning or over-giving or over-delivering to a certain degree for a period of time, there is no way to not feel used, abused, taken advantage of, even if you're volunteering for it, you still feel that way. And it's sort of like we blame the other people being like, I mean, I can't believe they would ask me to do that again. How about just saying, no, I have an idea. Like people will and are gonna ask you to do the most ridiculous shit, like entitled. And when you're an overgiver, you know, who finds you? Oh, the overtakers. That's right. And you have to have that limit because overtakers are not going to, they're going to be like, yes, you're going to do it all. Amazing. Let me add some more to your plate to do. And another really strange byproduct of this, but I've seen it so many times. I know it's true. If you are a real overfunctioner, right? High functioning codependent, like I was in my twenties, I could take a perfectly capable human being and make them an underfunctioner. Does that, do you identify, you know what I'm saying? Like actually. So if every time I remember when I met my husband, cause I actually didn't get married. So I was 35 and didn't really want to get married. I was like, this seems not that great. <laughs> like, 
I'm not sure what everyone's talking about, but this actually just doesn't seem great. And I really came to the point, I was like, unless someone is going to come to the party that is my life, that is amazing. I've created it on my own and they're going to bring something wholly awesome that I cannot do for myself, that I cannot provide for myself. I don't need it. Like my life is great the way that it is. So I meet my husband. I remember telling my mother that, you know, he was like, I'll come scoop you up. So he would like drive from New Jersey into the Upper West Side of Manhattan to drive me back to New Jersey, right? That's where he was living with the kids. And I would be like, that is totally inefficient. Like I could just jump on a train. Like you don't, you don't need to do that. It's okay. Or he would go, if we were going somewhere, he would go early to get the tickets so I wouldn't have to stand in line because it was raining. You know what I mean? And I would be like, it's okay. Like I could do it. Finally, my mother was like, Tara, why are you denying him the pleasure it gives him to do nice things for you. Like you're the only one who can do nice things. I want you to think about every offer that he gives you to do anything for you. Like it's a Tiffany's box. And when you are like, no, I got it. You're basically taking that box and throwing it on the ground and stomping on it. Would you ever do that? And I was like, of course not. (laughs) That is so rude. She was like, but it is rude. Allow, accept. And, And she's like, and you know what? If you keep saying no, 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 the offers will stop coming and you will end up like me doing everything by yourself for yourself. And I was like, damn, that is some Janny Cole wisdom right there. (laughs) Yes. Oh gosh. It's so, it's like you're telling my story in so many different ways. So I just, I so appreciate your willingness to share some of that insight. How can we recognize boundary destroyers? Like what do we need to be on the lookout for so that we can guard ourselves a little better? Okay. That's a great question. I I actually devoted a whole chapter in the book called Boundary Destroyers to this because this is a very particular personality type where they use emotional manipulation tactics to get what they want from you. So this could be someone with a narcissistic personality disorder. It could be any of the cluster B personality disorders could fall into this if the person is not being, you know, not being cared for in this way. So I think the first thing is to stop positively projecting onto others because we have a tendency to be like, well, of course, everyone is like, this is normal. Anyone would do what I would do. That's not true. I remember in my young life being hurt by boundary destroyers and being like, who would do that? Like, who would do that? And of course, my therapist is like, "Uh, lots of people clearly would do that. And so it's painful to realize that others aren't necessarily like us, but trust your gut. It's like, this is where the people pleasers get in trouble, right? Because these folks know how to emotionally manipulate us with, all right, we start with, let's say love bombing. You get into a relationship with someone, love bombing is where they are just pouring the compliments, the love, the presence, that you're amazing. They're inviting you to a wedding like four years from now and you've been going out for two weeks, you know? Like, they're like, when are we moving in together? Oh my God, I want you to meet my mother. Like, all of this stuff. And it's a way of hooking you in. And once you're hooked in, and this could take six days, six weeks, six months, right, to do it, then especially if the person actually has narcissistic personality disorder, that will shift. There will always be some kind of a devaluation of you. And then usually some kind of discarding of you as well, but super painful. So you got to look out for love bombing. If someone is insisting that everything goes super duper fast, all you need to do to tell if it's someone who's a narcissist is just pump the brakes a little bit. Okay. I'm super enjoying this, but every night of the week in week two is a little much for me. 
And they will be, if they're really a narcissist, there's no way they can hide their offense to that you're rejecting their amazing gift of themselves, let's just say. But there's other ways of people manipulating us. Gaslighting is a really scary one where they're constantly trying to make you question your reality, where they firmly agreed to something, whatever it was. And then you go, okay, well, I told you about this. We're going to my grandmother's 90th birthday on Saturday. And they're like, literally, you never said that. You never invited me. Now, if you're not a super manipulative person, you you could question it and go, oh, maybe I, I thought I did. I really thought we were sitting on the couch, but you may be right. Maybe I didn't, right? Because you're normal, but that person is working you. So it's being aware of these types of manipulation tactics. So that's basically how I cover it in the book is I go over sort of the top kinds of manipulation tactics, like faux concern. So you're calling them out on some bullshit, bad behavior. And they're like, Hey babe, I'm really worried about you. I mean, I don't want to say anything. Bob told me the other day that he was worried about you too. And I didn't want to say anything, but now I'm starting to think Bob is right. So peer pressuring you to feel humiliated and pretending they're concerned, but they're not. They're again, trying to get you back in line. I want you to shut up and do what I want you to do. So whatever I need to do to make that happen, I could pretend to be empathic towards you right? Because if they're really a narcissist, they don't have the capacity to actually be empathic, but many of them know how to mimic it. I mean, it's really scary, but trust your gut. Another thing is if someone is starting to try to separate you from the people in your life, right? They don't like your friends. They find something wrong with everyone. They're critical of your family. They don't want to, before you know it, like they're the only person in your friggin' life. Now you're already long way down the rabbit hole if you find yourself there. But if you're listening to this and you are there, it's time for you to do something for yourself. You, you need to not be in a relationship with someone who wants you all to themselves. If you find yourself lying to the people in your life about your partner's bullshit behavior, like you, you just are like, no, they wouldn't understand. No, you are in denial and you're covering up for them. So part of it is don't keep any secrets. If the person though is violent in any way, or you think they might be violent, we can put this in the show notes. I have a, I have a whole thing I did on how to safely leave an abusive relationship because that's what we're talking about. Don't show your cards though. If you're even remotely thinking of ending a relationship with someone who's unstable or who is doing any of the things I'm describing, do not preview what you might or might not do. Please make a plan, make sure it's safe, make sure you involve other people and reclaim your life. Get the hell out safely though, only safely. So something I heard you say a few times in there was trust your gut and the individuals that, you know, are listening and that we work with commonly have disordered eating and food Mm -hmm. addiction, which means I don't trust myself. I don't trust my body. I don't trust what I know. I need to follow a diet plan or something. So, you know, being a boundary boss takes grit and guts and a desire to be self-determined. Like how Mm -hmm. do we get that self-determination or how do we increase it? Like what's the solution there? Well, part of it is knowing that you need help, right? So if you are looking for so much validation outside of yourself, if you're always seeking, if you're someone who is always confused about making decisions, like I I always see this as you know, confusion so much of the time masks other things where it's like a fear of making a decision. So if you say I'm confused and you sort of delay making a decision, what is the secondary gain there? I don't have to make a decision and just 
figure out it's the wrong decision. So there's, you know, the reality of that though, is not making a decision eventually is making a decision by default, which we don't necessarily want to do. Before we look outside to our relationships, we start everything in the way that I start the book and in my courses is we start inside. It all has to go inside where you're looking at yourself. You have good reasons to have disordered eating if you have that. I had good reasons to be an alcoholic, right? I stopped drinking, but I had good reasons to over drink and numb my feelings because nobody taught me how to do it any other better way. And there was lots of alcoholics in my family. So part of it is stop being so mean to yourself, right? Treat yourself the way you would a five-year-old kid who you adore. You would never say the mean crap that you say to yourself, to your best friend even, right? You wouldn't. So it's really about your relationship with yourself before you can have Uh, a self-determined, fully embodied life of your choosing. You have to know yourself. You have to do the work. You have to go into the basement, which is your unconscious. Do it through therapy. Do it through courses with people who are reputable. Do it through, there's there's many different ways of listening to this podcast is a great way to start, right? There's so much that you can learn right here. And there's so much good stuff out there that's free from books to podcasts, but focus on yourself. Don't focus on getting in a relationship. Don't focus on having the perfect size butt, right? Focus on why you are relating the way that you are in this disordered way to food or alcohol or weed or whatever it is and get that house in order because that has to happen first. We won't be able to, right? That's the foundation that you're going to build a self-determined life on. So we can't build it on finding the right person or being a size four or whatever. It has to be built on the five pillars that I created in my work of self-mastery or, you know, what do we call it? Uh, Transformation or really self-love is starting with self-awareness right? Something needs to change. And then we move into self-knowledge. Like we've got to open those boxes in the basement. We have to look at why we are the way we are. And usually it's helpful to do it with a psychotherapist, whether it's someone like me who does this stuff online virtually, you know, whether you go to betterhelp.com or something like that, or see a therapist in person, the self-knowledge that is really helpful. The third pillar is self-acceptance. Because so much of the time we want to protect our parents. We want to protect other people. My, I can't tell you how many clients have said, my God, it was like 30 years ago. What the hell's wrong with me? Why am I still crying about what happened when I was seven? Because uh, you never d- dealt with what happened when you were seven. And it's going to continue to be an activation point in you until you honor what your experience is. Because that's the child within you, which is in all of us. Who's like, hi, does anyone care what I experienced? Why do I need to worry about my parents' feeling when I need to actually worry about the child within's feeling? And I'm not saying we need to confront our parents now if you don't want to. I'm not even saying we have to involve them. But if you had a dis, you know, chaotic childhood in any way, you've learned <laughs> to prioritize your parents' feelings and lots of other people's feelings above your own. And your healing must come from caring about the way you felt my clients would say, I don't want to blame my parents. I mean, our relationship is great now. I'm like, yeah, but the seven-year-old is still pissed that nobody said that it was incorrect that she was making dinner for the four-year-old when she was seven. And it was incorrect and it is incorrect and it sucked and she got robbed of a childhood and we have to honor that and allow that and then reparent that kid. And all of this stuff 
is going to happen before you create a self-determined life. So there's no quick fix, right? The book walks you through it. I've got courses that walk you through it, but this will be, this will get you on the right path. And your self-evolution is a lifelong experience if you're lucky, right? I don't know that we're ever getting there, quote unquote. We just get healthier, happier, more satisfied, more ourselves. Because if you think about not telling the truth about how you feel, not asserting what you want, you could be like those women I was talking about, who in the end of life, you're like, wow, why am I existentially lonely? Because nobody knows you. And here's the thing. You're so incredibly worth knowing. Such a great response to that question. And I just appreciate, again, this hour has flown. It's flown. And I think that it's a great way for our, our listeners to dip their toes, right? It's just to dip their toes, get the book, find you. In fact, that's my next question is where can our listeners find you? Well, you can take the boundary quiz at boundaryquiz.com to see what your boundary archetype is. You can get the book at boundarybossbook.com if you want all the bonuses that go with it, or you can buy the book anywhere because it's out everywhere. You can find me at terrycole.com. I hang out most on Instagram. I do a lot of Instagram lives. Those are all the things. I've got lots of different courses that people can choose from, from mother wound course to no, no narc course. If you are involved with a narcissist, there's lots to choose from. But what I want to leave you with thought wise is that you can do this, that you don't have to settle for a life that's like life light. It doesn't really feel like your life. It isn't worth it to keep the peace. And you can learn baby step by baby step to be more authentic in your life. Because as I said before, you're so worth knowing. And if nobody authentically knows you, how will anyone ever authentically love you? You know? And I think like I, we usually finish with a signature question. If you could tell a younger version of yourself, something about boundaries, what would it be? And I think you just shared so much, but do you have anything to add to that? I would say you are enough. Like you don't have to work this hard. You're valuable inherently just, just by virtue of being alive you're valuable. And I think I really thought when I was younger that I needed to work really hard to earn my keep, so to speak, in relationships. And I wish I had learned that earlier, that I was worthy simply because I exist. Yeah, it certainly speaks to my workaholism as well. <laughs> the glove, right? I'm with you. Well, thank you so much for being here today, Terry. I have gotten so much from this and I know our audience will as well. So thank you. Thank you guys so much for having me. I had so much fun. Thank you. Thanks for joining us this week on Food Junkies, Recovery from Food Addiction. Make sure to join our Facebook group, Sugar Free for Life Support Group, I'm Sweet Enough. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or Stitchers. That way you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Don't forget to pick up your copy of Dr. Tarman's book, Food Junkies, which is available on Amazon. If you have any additional questions, both Molly and Clarissa are food addiction professionals and work one-on-one with clients. You can find their websites and email addresses in the show notes. Be sure to tune in every Friday when our new episodes drop. As Vera loves to say, the power is ours.